Okay, so this was part of an informal double bill of movies because they were both made in 1984, it turns out. So we did... Uh, yeah, that was purely coincidental, wasn't yeah. it? So we did um, uh, Friday the 13th Part 4. Yep. The final chapter, the most misnamed, meretricious final chapter. And this one, which is Night of the Comet, which has the rare distinction of being one of the movies that you suggested that I watch that I've actually seen yes. before. Well, I'm not entirely surprised that you have seen it. It, I, I reckon it probably is up your alley. Do you like this one? Yeah. yeah I, I, I assume I, if you're going to watch it a second time, you would. Yeah. Well, even though I hadn't, I, w- I would have for the purpose of the podcast, but why did you assume this would be my kind of movie? It's got that B-movie thing going on, mm. and it's also got two young female leads, which would probably help. That's very interesting. <laughs> no, but, but um, I like science fiction. Yeah. Uh, and this is a particularly good example of that, but it, it only gradually dawned on me. Uh, when I watch the movie, I also watch some of the extras, and it's very unusual for two women to be dominant, uh, to, to be the leads in this. And yeah. that's, it, it's, I sort of, I hadn't really thought about that, but it, that's, it was almost unique at the time. And even today is pretty darn unusual. It's just like when we did, uh, as some people may know, I used to work on a television program called Doctor Who. We had a character called Ace. And it was only decades later people pointed out how groundbreaking she was because she was sort of a self-motivated young woman and not just like a passive figure in other people's, in men's stories. And that's so true of the two characters in this. This is, in many ways, a really good movie. Yes. It's cheap. And it has the drawbacks of cheapness. But it's written and directed by a guy called Tom Eberhard. And he, it's a really good script. It's a very funny, very inventive script with great characters. He directed it himself. Like His deal was, if you want this script, you have to let me direct. And it's not brilliantly directed, but he probably said that because it was his first movie. Uh, his main drawbacks are just budgetary ones, that it was difficult to, to look great on this budget. But it's a zombie movie. It's sort of a zombie movie. Would you agree? It is. Um <laughs> I, I really like Night of the Comet. I, I think it's a good film, and it wasn't until I watched it through this time, which is the first time I've seen it in a few years, that I realised how much steam it loses halfway through. Um, the first half is much better than the second half, and the second half is... Is that... Uh, okay, is would you is the turning point when they meet uh, the scientists. It's when, oh, when they meet the scientists. When the scientists come along, that's when... I think it's a, a plot element that it doesn't need. I, oh, I link... That's very interesting. So just to, to summarise for people, this is kind of valley girls versus zombies would be the quick... It's not really like that, I know, but that's... The just, zombie thing is... I mean, there's really only red about three in there, if that. Yeah. So what happens is there is a comet coming close to the Earth and the comet basically kills everybody on Earth except for people who happen to be shielded by steel. steel. Yes. So... Uh, our heroine is in uh, a f- projection booth at a cinema, which for some reason is lined with steel. But, uh, I mean, is that a thing? Anyway, this one was. Her sister, by a vast coincidence, slept in a, a garden shed full of stuff and lined with steel. And then later they meet Hector, who slept in the back of his truck, a truck driver. And you get the picture. Yeah. Well, perhaps the best way to describe the zombie thing is to jump ahead to the interview I heard with Tom Eberhard in the uh, um, in the extras for this, where he talks about how he conceived the script. He said that he always loved empty city movies, which is one of the notes I jotted down is that empty cities are always good value because what happens is these girls 
wake up one morning and basically there's nobody else in Los Angeles. And that's great. That's always very compelling, seeing these, these deserted metropolises. And he said that was kind of the starting point for him. It was things like movies, a movie that made a big impression on him was Target Earth. Right. Uh, and I believe that was also shot in, in a deserted Los Angeles. And so he had this movie with these two girls. He said, it just started, this is a quote, it just started off as two girls in an empty city. Then he de decided he needed more stuff than that. More, more, I mean, you could imagine there'd be things like they'd be, be able to go anywhere and do whatever they want and drive cars really fast down the middle of the street and all this stuff, which they kind of do. But he knew that they needed more than that. So he decided that not everybody had been killed by the comet. And when we say killed, they actually turned to dust. So they wake up the next morning and there's all these clothes lying around with dust in them. And there's the gag, which I didn't get until it was pointed out to me, that in the cinema where one of the girls works, where she's an usherette, one of the posters on the wall is for red, red dust. dust. Yeah, you got that. But <laughs> that was just so thick I didn't get that. So they turn into red dust and blow away, except... Some of them don't, and the ones that don't turn into zombies who attack you. So in that sense, it's sort of a zombie movie. And the, the zombies do provide uh, probably a much-needed little bit of um, conflict and threat. They do. I, I think the scientists don't work. And I think when you, you've got two incredibly good leads uh, who can pull it off, which yeah. possibly on the page, on the script didn't work as well as it does on screen. So maybe he felt he needed more, but I think they worked best on their own without this extra element. When you've got the scene in the uh, in the mall later on where the three punks are basically attacking them, I think... Do you know they're supposed to be zombies? Did you know that? Well, it's not entirely clear because they all... They were the referred zombies... to in the commentary as zombies, but, but they, you're right, it's not clear. I we're inconsistent with our zombies in this film because some yeah. people are gnarling, gnashing you know, primates and other yeah. people are very well-spoken and exactly. seem to still be doing their old job. <laughs> <laughs> Although perhaps not with the same fervour. Because those three guys are just meant to be stock guys, uh, yeah. guys who worked in the stock room in that shop, so yeah. I, I, their motivation is rather odd. I don't fully understand. Why have they suddenly... It's only been one, what, two days? And they, already they, they formed their decayed, own small yeah. society of... Uh... <laughs> Once you started analysing it, it's true that that's dodgy. But you see, he said that he had he came up with the zombies, and then he came up with the, the scientists on the back of the zombies, so to speak. I think it was probably a question of him feeling the need to explain what's happened. You know, have a, a, a scientific explanation of what's going on and how people are reacting. So the, what the scientists are doing, the scientists are in this underground bunker, that's why they survived the uh, comet's passing... And they're desperately trying to find some solution. But what I, you know, you're denigrating the scientists, which, and it's true that, that the movie sort of does run, perhaps run out of steam at the point the scientists come into it. But what I thought was interesting is that the setup, you expect the setup to be, okay, they're in this empty city except for these menacing zombies, the occasional menacing zombie, and the zombies are going to be the threat. The threat turns out to be the scientists who you normally would think would be the good guys. So I liked that aspect of it. I mean, you've got to draw obvious parallels here to Dawn of the Dead. And um, with Dawn of the Dead, you have a similar situation where you've got a group of characters who are quite enjoying having a mall all to themselves, and right. that's the fun part of the film, and then suddenly it gets more serious. And this is the same, is that the girls are having fun, and then suddenly it gets more serious. And I think, really, given the stall they set out early on in terms of the tone of the film and everything else, you could have actually carried on with that and made more of it and had more fun and had a lighter threat. Because... A viewer, every main viewers generally, 
Okay. Viewers generally can relate to what they see. They can relate to two valley girls and so forth. But they can't relate to science and scientists and whatever their motivation is. And unless you make that motivation clear, all you've got is a proxy villain. They, they don't work, as I, far as I'm concerned, they, I for, really for an villainous. audience reactive. They're villainous, but up to that point, you've had something to relate to. You've got these two girls and you think, well, I know what I would do in this situation. It's pretty much what they're doing. You have a bit of fun with it. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got some freedom now. So what's the problem with the scientists? Can you explain? I just don't think they're necessary. I don't think they bring anything to the plot. And I think the film grinds to a halt when they turn up. That first 45 minutes flies by and the last 45 minutes drags like hell. It out. turns into a different movie because what happens is the scientists, they, they do two things. They split up the sisters. And this, let's name check the actresses who play the sisters. You've got Catherine Mary Stewart, who is in all the good 80s films. And you've also got Kerry Mar- Kerry Mar- Kelly Maroney. Thank you. And that, that's the older sister and the younger sister. Not to be confused with Kerry Mahoney, who is uh, Steve Gutenberg's character in Police Academy. Okay. <laughs> well, what are some of the other movies that they've been in then? Uh, well, Catherine Mary Stewart did uh, Weekend at Bernie's. She was the girlfriend Gwen in that. She was in Last Starfighter in the same year as this. That's right. Two yes. big video game films. She's obviously, yep. you know, she, she obviously found herself a niche. Uh, she also did a film called Mischief, which is really good, which is a sort of 50s uh, teen film. And, do you know, I may even have written down some of the other and did, she did. Do we know, did Kelly Maroney do a bunch of interesting stuff? I haven't, I don't no. think I know her from anything They else. both came from daytime television, daytime soaps. Hmm. Uh, and they make the point, as does the director, that that sort of background is incredibly valuable because they're so used to doing things fast. Hmm. And with no mucking about, but when you're making a low-budget movie, that's a tremendous virtue. I think both of them bring a lot to this. And Ke- Kelly, Mar- oh, Kelly Maroney, I'm so used to saying Kerry Mahoney. <laughs> Kelly Maroney, um, especially, has a really nice touch. One that you don't expect because... Well, she's the, the younger sister, yeah. and she's a cheerleader, but she's not a ditz at all. They're, they're, they're great characters. And what we have to say is that they're the daughters of a special forces officer a green beret officer and i had forgotten the end of the movie i fully expected their dad to come back and turn up in the last reel and he doesn't but it's terrific because um he's trained them to defend themselves so they're not these passive little victims it's they're wonderful kick-ass women and there's this brilliant bit where they they they, actually you don't see when they get the guns there's a great bit of dialogue where they're talking about this army base where they can go and get automatic weapons. Yeah. You know, oh, that's going to be an interesting scene. We never see that, but they do end up with guns. And they're, they, they've got these guns, and I don't know anything about guns, but these guns are automatic weapons called MAC-10s, and they're shooting them, and they keep jamming, right? And apparently what happened was they, they were using these MAC-10s, and they did indeed keep jamming for real when they were shooting these sequences. And uh, they, they were supposed to have been given Uzis, but the budget didn't stretch to Uzis or they couldn't source Uzis, so they ended up with these MAC-10s, and they just kept jamming. And so uh, Tom Everhart said to the actresses, just just improvise. If they jam again, just improvise. And the improvisation was, Dad would have gotten us Uzis, <laughs> which was just great. Uh, I, just, I mean, I, I love that. And I, it also brings the characters to life for me. They're, they're just very ballsy, very fun characters, which I liked a lot. There's signs of it earlier on as well. Ke- um, Kelly Maroney's first scene. You can never say that. Can it's going to be tough. Her first scene is an argument with her stepmother. And at one point, I can't remember what it says to push her stepmother over the edge, but her stepmother slaps her. I can tell you. She slaps I can tell her back. You. What is her the line? stepmother is being unfaithful to their father, who's yeah. in. It's Chuck, isn't it? Yeah. 
he's in Central America, probably murdering, uh, you know, left-wing people. But anyway, so her line to him, to, to the stepmother is, uh, you were born with an asshole, you don't need Chuck. <laughs> yes, that's the one. <laughs> and she, and uh, the stepmother punches her. which well, is yeah. she, The stepmother slaps her, she slaps the stepmother, and then the stepmother just punches her full in the face, which it is escalates. very unexpected. Yeah, well, um, Tom Eberhardt was saying that that got a big reaction from people, you know, from audiences. Mm. He also said he thinks he might have stolen the, the asshole line from some porn movie he saw. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was very noble, and he didn't have to own up to, to, to nicking that line. There's a line really early on that bothers me a lot because it reminds me how nice cinemas used to be, um, where Reggie, which is Catherine Mary Stewart's character, is working in the lobby of the, the cinema. Reggie short for Regina, yeah. Yeah. And um, her job for that evening is to go and walk the house, which is basically just to go and walk down the aisles and make sure everyone's behaving themselves in the cinema. Yeah. You never get that now. I wish you did. But that really struck home with me. Just walk the house. Yeah, if only. Um, you, you felt that that was a vision of a lost world. The Odeon need to bring this back because <laughs> just someone walking down the aisles just saying, would you just turn the damn phone off? Yeah. Yeah. I um, can't, I, I mean, impassioned cry of, yes, it's, it's so true. I we need to walk the that. house more. Yeah, yeah that, that hit home. <laughs> in that sequence, um, Catherine Mary Stewart is playing a video game, yeah. which is in the uh, the lobby of the cinema, and they they make the point that that even when the movie was made, that video game was out of date. And the thing is, she wants to be. I'm pausing at the moment because my cat's coming through the cat flap. Hello again, Joey. We may have to have some special. We need a special sort of factor of theme music. I'm just wondering if Jade's going to say anything. She's sauntering through. I think we can probably pick up the sound of her paws on the floor. Of course we're going to pick up the sound of her paws. Our glasses are. It's like a T-Rex statue. Oh, lovely. But anyway, so she's playing this video game and she is so obsessive about it that she wants to be all of the top ten scorers yeah. wants to be her. And there's one... So she's finally eliminated number six, who was DMK, and she's replaced him with R-E-G, short, Reg, short for Red, Regina. And the great thing is, at the very end of this movie... There's a, a brilliantly concise sequence because what happens is after the evil scientists are de defeated because it turns out that scientists are more of a threat than zombies. When they're defeated, we have um, Regina, Reggie, gets married to Hector, who's the guy we mentioned earlier. He appears to be the last man left on Earth. And then it sort of leaves her little sister high and dry. And the sister is just walking across the road and this car screeches up and almost runs her over and the guy stops and apologises and uh, they, he's handsome, she's cute. They decide to go off on a date together. Uh, they zoom away. And then we see his license plate says DMK. Yeah. And I just, I loved that. I just thought it was such a great little touch. But the hilarious thing is it turns out it was never planned that way. When Tom Eberhardt wrote the script, he said people just kept saying, so who's DMK? That she and he just got so fed up with it, he decided to tie it into the movie in some fashion. And I was kind of disillusioned to discover that because it's such a brilliant touch I would I it would have been even cooler if it had been I don't know it's hard to say which is cooler if it had been intentionally built in from the beginning or whether it had arisen in this strange kind of arbitrary way that it did but it's, it is a lovely little touch at the end it's really underplayed so it's not like it's full force DMK it, you need to be looking for it I don't think they hammer it home at all it doesn't get a full shot doesn't get a full screen shot or anything does it no yeah, it's just the back of the car yeah, it's but, quite subtle yeah Again, there's another nice line in that sequence where she goes, nice car, and he goes, thanks, I've got 12 of them. <laughs> yeah, well, it's full of really good dialogue. Tom Eberhardt's a very good writer, uh, which is interesting because the only other really notable film he did, he didn't write, which was Without a Clue, 
which is a very no, without a clue. It's a Sherlock Holmes movie with this I know it very well. brilliant it's conceit, which is that Holmes is just like is is not a not at all a genius. He's not even smart. The real brains of the operation is Doctor Watson, and Holmes is kind of the front man. Yeah. And it's a terrific movie, terrific conceit. Uh, it's not written by Eberhardt, but Eberhardt did direct it. He directed it soon after Night of the Comet, probably on the strength of the success of, of that movie. And I was sorry to see that Tom Eberhardt, although he's kept fairly busy, it's mostly been in television, he hasn't done a great many movies again over the years. I think it's probably quite easy to get disillusioned in Hollywood. It's, you know, sometimes easy to... Almost all the good directors have moved into TV now, especially thanks to Netflix. So working in television is not the curse it used to be. No, that well, that's very true. Uh, but what did strike me, again, this is drawn from the Eberhard interview on the commentary track, is that he'd written the script and the script really clicked. Uh, he said he wrote the script and like a few months later he was making the movie and it, because people fell in love with the script and they wanted to make it. So that just shows the power of a good script and, and what a, an excellent writer he was. And a good director too. He got some good... Uh, I say good director... He gets some really good sequences early on. The deserted LA is absolutely incredible. Do you know how they shot that? Well, as I understand it, they, they waited between gaps in traffic lights and just shot stuff really quick. That That's one thing they did. Very early and in the, morning. the other thing is that they went down on Christmas morning. Right, okay. <laughs> First thing, really early on Christmas morning, and, and did some shooting then. So it was all totally... I don't know if that was my cat or your daughter. But that, <laughs> Someone's got to have a flat. Be quiet! Yes. Uh... <laughs> But so it was It was totally just shooting stuff advantageously. There was yeah. no special effects and there was very little crowd control. They did occasionally get a cop to, to stop a street just briefly. But it's remarkable the sense of emptiness that they achieve with very little effort Absolutely. and very little expense in that movie. And with the music as well, there's quite a John Carpenter vibe throughout the whole thing. Well, let's talk about the music. Most of the music is hideous songs from that period I mean presumably there are people who will love songs from that period but I really hated them uh, with a passion <laughs> sorry they are but you do get the original Girls Just Wanna Have Fun rather than the Girls Cindy Lauper Girls Just Wanna Have oh I didn't know that wasn't Cindy Lauper that's no, interesting no that's uh, I, I well, probably wrote her name but, down. But I can't think of her name that's during the sequence in the, d the department Tammy store Tammy Holbrook oh how cool yeah, yeah so that's because I was trying to think out the chronology if it could have been no no that's the thing is that that came out about a year before Cindy Lauper's fantastic uh, but but it, that is a good sequence because it's a sequence where they just because the city's empty they can do anything they want they're basically going shopping helping themselves to clothes but it's great because these evil quasi zombie guys turn up and Catherine Mary Stewart turns to her assistant makes this where's the gun gesture which I just <laughs> love it was wonderful yeah, they both got it sorted, and then that attack as well is a really good sequence because neither of them is ever really a proper victim in it. What bothers me is that you get to the end of it and they need to be rescued from it. And I think I that spoils all the work that's been done up to that I point. I think with we them. just heard from Jade. We did hear yeah. from Jade. She agreed completely with yeah. me. <laughs> no, well, it's true because they, they do. I, they should have triumphed. They should yeah. because they're smart, they're weapons trained. Uh, these guys that they're up against would, would not have had their abilities. They, they should have. But you're right, they both end up tied up, trussed up, and about to be executed when, rather arbitrarily, I think the scientists turn up and rescue yeah, them. Yeah. yeah, Not Hector. Hector's a weird character. They well, Hector, Hector is a... I, I started off really not liking Hector at all, but he grew on me quite steadily. By the time he's wearing a cowboy hat and playing country <laughs> music and driving whatever it is, a Cadillac across yeah. the desert, 
which he does, all of which is in uh, in the effort to rescue them from the evil scientist. I quite liked Hector, and by the time we reached the end, I, I liked him a lot. Are you familiar with Robert Beltran, the actor? Uh, only because I then watched some of the extras and I discovered he was in, he was Raoul Ra in Eating Raoul, which is all I know about him now. <laughs> He's also very well known as uh, Commander Chakotay in Star Trek Voyager. Okay, so that he did makes uh, sense. six yeah, or seven yeah. years on that. Um, it's interesting; he actually gets top billing on that film, but I wasn't aware that he was particularly a name at the time in '84. Well, he'd done that other feature, as I say, Eating Ra Raoul, mm. Paul Bartel movie. Uh, so, so I suppose, but but you're right. Catherine Mary Stewart would have been the natural one to, to have top billing. I, well, course. I've got a feeling that uh, Last Starfighter hadn't come out yet, so that was her big break. Yeah, but she's very good in this, yeah. and her, her and I'm I'm get want you to want you to say her name again. God's sake, Kelly Maroney. Yeah, they're <laughs> they're both interviewed in the extras, and they both come across like really well. Like I I I just thought they were came across as terrific people and. When you know that Kelly Maroney mm -hmm. was what, like, I'm looking at you for this, uh, was 24. Yeah. And she's playing, like, 16, uh, very convincingly in some ways. Yeah, Catherine Rose Stewart was 25, Kelly Maroney was uh, 24. I looked them they're both just, up. They're, but they're brilliant. They're really brilliant. Uh, and it's a terrific movie with the, the reservations. But, well, you know, what you're saying that the scientists, when it moves into scientists, it's a different gear. What I liked about it was that you set up this thing that you think the zombies are going to be the threat, but the people who normally would be the good guys, the scientists fighting the zombie plague, turn out to be much worse because what they're basically doing is they're, they're for any survivors they're finding, they're just using them, uh, they're, they're basically killing them to make use of them in the hope that they'll be able to develop uh, a cure. I think my problem with those sequences is... Up to that point, it's quite a visual film. You've got the um, you open with the nice interiors of the cinema, and that's all. It looks lovely. It's a proper old style cinema. I like that. You've got the uh, the streets, all the deserted LA looks amazing. It's quite wide and open. The radio station is black, but it's got the nice neons, which are very eighties. But then yeah. suddenly, for almost forty minutes, we're in grey corridors and grey tunnels I, I, with nothing. I else don't think it goes on for quite forty minutes. But you're right; oh, you, you are in this this sort of boring bunker. But the stuff that's going on in that bunker is, is good because they eventually the, the scientists are really evil. Because I was trying to think of what the word is for when you experiment on people and kill them. Like I can't think of what the term is. Well, I, I thought it was vivisection, but vivisection something. But that's what I thought it was. So these evil scientists are doing all these horrible experiments. Not only are they going to do it on our beloved uh, Catherine Mary Stewart, Regina, they're also they've got the couple of cute little kids that <laughs> yes. they're all too willing to uh, to put to death. Uh, and what they they're gassing the kids and they're telling them they're going to go see Santa Claus. Uh, they're giving them nitrous oxide, actually, laughing gas, which I don't think would kill you. But I think I assume this is prefatory to killing them. But which leads to a great sequence when uh, the sisters rescue them and the evil scientists who are gassing the kids end up tied up and they they have the gas the gas mask strapped to their faces and their colleagues come in and find them. There's a note there that says, going to see Santa, yes. which I just love. Yeah. I hope you noticed, by the way, that I sneaked another Christmas film under your radar here. Oh, was it? Was it? Did this take place at Christmas? Yeah, there's trees, Christmas trees in the foyer. The That's cinema. right. There is. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> well, you know, we're heading towards Christmas. You know, you can sneak a few more my way. At least we've got plenty of Christmas options here. No, but I've done a lot of talking about this. You should, you should say some things about it too. Like, when did you first see this movie? 
It actually was fairly recent. I never saw it when it came out. You're kidding. Um, I got it. Did you go after it because of Catherine Mary Stewart? Yeah. Okay. Um, and she, she, what was the movie that you discovered her in? Well, the first one would have been Last Starfighter, which yeah. I watched relentlessly back to back when it first came out. I Does she have a good role in that? Um, not really. She, I mean, she's a woman in the 80s, so no. <laughs> yeah, but she's a woman she's in the, the 80s girlfriend. in this movie, and it's she's great. She yeah, but this one movie. wasn't out on, v, on VHS when I was going down the rental yeah. shop. Okay. Um, but she was also in Weekend at Bernie's, which I watched relentlessly. And again, she's just the girlfriend in Weekend at Bernie's. But the fact that she was in two films that I really liked yeah. meant that it comes a point where you think, well, what else has she done? And then you start looking for the other films. And uh, yeah. And so when you saw this, did you think, oh wow, this is a great movie? The first time, yes. Um, this is <laughs> this is only the third time I've seen it. Um, and in fact, the, I think probably the Blu-ray I gave you was still sealed, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. But it, it, it is a very, it's a very nice a double disc Blu-ray and DVD with yeah. lots of extras. And I'd, I'd recommend people go out and have a look at this movie. I'd get buy a copy. Give, well, give the give Tom Eberhardt some money and you know the other people some money. I think the release I loaned you was the Arrow one. Uh, Arrow video and it's a, I'm a I believe it's a nice package I've completely forgotten there were extras and commentaries I haven't watched any of that I don't even think I've unwrapped uh, sort of watched what's in it so well I'm glad I did because it just gave me that like that whole empty city thing it's interesting that that was the first thing that I thought was really striking about the movie and that it turns out that was what Tom Eberhardt that was his starting point yeah. I, like I loved empty city movies deserted city exactly that's one of those things I like as well um, you got things like Omega Man and uh Oh, that's a good one, yeah. Oh, what's the Vincent Price one? Um, it was the last, it's the same movie. Last it's last yeah, yeah. It's, it's based on, all of those are based on I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. Yeah. All of those. All Except I Am Legend, which I loathe. <laughs> I you mean the Will Smith version? Was it Will Smith? I think it was, yeah. yeah. Was. He's wandering around with an iPod for most of the film. Yeah, but, yeah, but a very nice dog. Okay. So that's sort of a cross-reference cross to the uh, Friday the 14th, the Friday the 13th Part yeah. 4 movie, in which there was also a very nice dog. Uh, not much else to recommend it. However, there's lots to recommend this movie. I there is, absolutely. And I, I don't think I've got much else to uh, to praise this one for. Um, some really nice dialogue in there. And there's some nice throwaways as well. The, the two girls, there's a scene at the beginning where Catherine Mary Stewart locks herself out of the cinema. And as she's walking down the pavement, she's muttering to herself. And she trips on some of the clothes on the floor that are covered in red dust. And she goes, stupid clothes and red dust. But it's, <laughs> yeah, I think it's an improv line. But yeah, it's a really good one. I just like the idea that it still hasn't occurred to her that this stuff is everywhere. And why has everyone left their clothes everywhere? So, yeah. Two really good leads in this. I think they, they make the film what it is. Um, I don't think it's that good a script. I think they make it a good script. Oh, no, I disagree. It was the script that got the movie made. It's it's they those characters. He created those characters, although they do have some improvisation, and I I think and it's a very amusing and well written and well characterized script. Okay, if you say so. Another Christmas film. Oh uh, well, the one more line. One more line from it. It, it about it's about the knowledge of guns. It's when. Um, Reggie sees the pistol that Hector's packing and she, she says uh, this might be alright for uh, for date night in the barrio <laughs> this might be okay for date night in the barrio but we're going to need a little more stopping power I just like those really like those ballsy women and that's a Tom Eberhardt line so it's a great one. This has been a podcast by Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel, and very importantly, 
A big shout out to Joe Kramer who did the fantastic theme music which you heard at the beginning. Mm -hmm.